As I was driving in this morning, talking with Sharon, all of a sudden it hit me something out of this passage that I hadn't really noticed before. And that is that, uh, well, let me just back up a bit. This is what I was thinking. Back in 2000, in the United Methodist Church, we had a big thing called, uh, uh, let's see, what do they call it? Something, Vision 2000. And uh, it was uh, all about this big thing where we were supposed to be helping the church to grow. And uh, we were supposed to be reaching out in different ways because our denomination was going the wrong way and we needed to head out in a new direction. And so we had Vision 2000. They had rallies, district rallies, and all sorts of things going on. And then we had this big program. And I remember one of the big things that came out of it was something that they called frangelism. Do y'all remember frangelism? Any of you? No? Okay. Fran stands for friends, relatives, acquaintances, and neighbors. And so uh, frangelism was reaching out to your friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. And uh, so uh, that was a big deal. And the theory behind it, the church growth theory, was that likes attracted likes. And people congregate and go to church with people that are like them. Well, so we all did the frangelism thing. We did the Philip Hughes Sundays. We did all this sort of stuff. And then we get to 2010 and things are changing. And all of a sudden we're being told you need to reevaluate your mission field. And your mission field isn't just who's like you. Your mission field is the people all around your church building. And uh, so uh, forget about uh, this uh, frangelism stuff that likes attract lights. That's, that's old. That's passe. Now be inclusive. Now get those people that are different from you in there. And so do you see the change from one to the other? And so, and then from then on, it got to be, let's just make the church more warm, more inviting. And uh, let's, uh, let's start watering down the gospel so that people will feel comfortable coming and sitting in our pews. And you see, somewhere along the way, church growth had become what it was all about as we continued to die losing a million members a year. What was wrong with that? Jesus tells us right here what was wrong with that. Because what he says is, uh, uh, he says, okay, who do people say that I am? And so uh, the disciples start naming all the different people they thought he was. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed art thou Simon Barjona. You are Peter. 
And upon this rock, I will build my church. Okay, so first of all, he says, you are Peter. Now that means a stone. And then he says, upon this rock. That's a derivative word, but it's a different word uh, from the word Petros, Petros. And it means a foundation, a stone foundation, a solid foundation. And Jesus says, you're a rock, you're a stone. And upon this rock, I am going to build my church. Several things to take from that. First of all, Jesus doesn't grow his church. He doesn't grow it. He builds it. And Peter says in another place, he was identifying with this when he said that we are like living stones being built up into the sanctuary of God. We are the stones. How do you become a rock? How did Peter become a rock? He became a rock by having it revealed to him who Jesus not just was, but who he is. And that is the foundation that Jesus builds his church on. Not that he grows his church on, but that he builds his church on one rock at a time. He builds his church. And uh, we need to be sure that we are one of those living stones. First of all, before you go any further, I'm afraid that there are a lot of people that haven't become living stones that are trying to make the church bigger out of something other than living stones. And so that's just what hit me coming in this morning out of all of this. And uh, so the revelation from God is, uh, is what, church, what Jesus builds his church on. He isn't building his church on love. He isn't building his church on making the world a better place to be. And if you look around, I've been looking at different church websites this past week because I'm building a website for us. And I'm looking around and seeing and all these different uh, inviting things that they have there. Uh, they're all things like, uh, uh, well, anyway, this is a family friendly church. This is a this. This is a that. And uh, you look at that and then you look at the different slogans for different denominations and all. And you see, he isn't building his church on the right kind of worship service. People fight over worship services. That's not what it's all about. He isn't building his church on wokeness. He isn't building his church on social action. He's not building it on political activism. He isn't building it on on popular preaching or preachers when it is revealed to the human heart that Jesus is the one sent by God, the only one sent by God. 
Everything else, all these other things up above that I've mentioned, will all fall in their proper place. But until you get that right, who Jesus is, and you make him the Son of God to you, I mean, to you alone, that's whenever things start to fall into place. And then real worship will happen. Right conduct and right attitudes towards people will happen and the gospel will be shared which people need to hear there is only one christ peter said you are the christ not a christ you are the christ you are the messiah you are the promised one you're the one we've been looking for and here you are there is only one son of god not many sons of God. <sighs> I went to serve a church one time and it was such a challenge because when I first got there, the people who were good uh, church members were saying, Jesus, Moses, Mohammed, Martin Luther King Jr., Buddha, Confucius, Mother Teresa, they're all God, aren't they? And they had this broad spectrum that Jesus was just one among many. And they had missed the one thing that Jesus was building his church on. Sharon, they did go global, didn't they? And what? Did they go global? Yes. I was there for four years and they learned, they learned what the foundation was. They learned what was supposed to be happening in church and what church was really all about. You see, there's only one Christ. There's only one son of God. Now, a lot of people have doubts and concerns and uh, maybe you have from time to time. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he even had his doubts whenever he was in prison. And uh, he sent someone to ask, one of his disciples to ask, are you the one, or should we be looking for another? Are you the, are you the one that was promised? Are you the one? Not the one among many. Are you the one? And you remember what Jesus said? He quoted from uh, the uh, uh, from the from the book of Isaiah. He said, uh, "Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see: the blind receive sight, and the lame walk; the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear; the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them." And blessed is he who does not take offense on me. I'm so glad that he put that last line in there. Because it seems that we've gotten today where we, have, we feel like we have to be so inclusive. And yes, we do need to be inclusive of all people. But we're not inclusive when it comes to Jesus Christ because he was so exclusive. He said, narrow is the way. 
Broad is the way that leads into the wrong place that you want to go. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. And so uh, uh, at this point, a lot of people who call themselves Christian have real problems. Jesus said to John, and he's going to say to us today, I'm the one. I'm the guy. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the only one that's ever going to come. And later on, he says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back again. He's the one. There's no, none, no, none of these other people that are considered founders of religions and all. They're not the ones that are going to come back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the one. Now then, the disciples, even as Jesus was getting ready to leave, and he was trying to prepare them for it, all of a sudden Thomas said to him, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And we sure don't know how to get there. So even the disciples, after they had been with him for so long, even they were confused. And so that's when he said these words that uh, define who he is. You see, the revelation is that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And then he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says these words that trouble so many people and that should be good news for all of us. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's how you get there. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And this time, whenever truth has been just uh, so messed up, where we don't even know uh, what, uh, where people don't want to admit that there is such a thing as reality. Uh, we're all supposed to live in our own little subjective dream worlds, I guess. It's incredible. But uh, anyway, uh, so many people, you, you, this, it all comes down from the, or comes from Christians are supposed to be nice people. And nice people are supposed to be inclusive. And uh, so they'll say, well, I believe that Jesus is the way for me. That's my truth. But somebody else, their truth might be another way. And uh, it's the concept of uh, all the paths lead up the mountain to God. And that's not what Jesus is telling us. He said, there's only one. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When you buy into that, when you embrace that, when you decide to put all the other yammering and all the other, well, what about this and what about that? And you embrace, there's only one way and it's a person and his name is Jesus, and he is the Christ. Whenever you get to that point, all of a sudden, things start to fall into place where they're supposed to. And then you become a stone, a living stone 
that becomes a part that's built into his church. And he uses you to build his church. He's not growing his church. He doesn't care about numbers. He cares about rocks. One rock at a time, he builds his church. So the first question is, have you come to that point to where you realize that he's the one? Because whenever you finally settle that, all of a sudden the cross becomes what it should be. Jesus' blood was shed there for you. And you can appropriate it and receive personally forgiveness and deliverance from guilt and shame. He's the way. The only way. And you can avail yourself to that. And not only that, not only is, uh, is, is, is do you embrace the cross, but then there's His resurrection where He rose from the dead the only one that's risen from the dead to offer us eternal life. Not based on how good we've been. Not based on how many uh, souls we have saved. But not on any works that we've done. But solely because we have trusted that His blood is sufficient to, to, to do away with the sins of the whole world. All of a sudden that becomes real. And when that becomes real, the Holy Spirit comes in and you can't help but be happy. And you can't help but want to tell other people about Him. And you see, it's changed people that change people. And so, uh, uh, let's just want to move on. I want to emphasize this this morning about Jesus being the way. He's the way out. He's the way out of darkness. He's the way out of, uh, of just feeling around in the dark and like so many people say, I hope I'm going to heaven. You shouldn't hope you're going to heaven. You should know you're going to heaven. And, uh, and it's only through Jesus Christ that you can know that. And it's such a wonderful news. It's such good news. You see, this is good news that we have to share. There's no way that you can get there on your own. But you don't have to worry about that because Jesus has already made the way and He is the way. So uh, uh, He's the way out of condemnation, bondage, shame, misery, guilt. It says uh, in John eight thirty six, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He is the way out. He came to make a way out when we could not make a way out. Let me tell you a story about how all this comes together. Josh McDowell who is uh, one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith of our lifetime. Uh, he's responsible for pointing multitudes to the Lord. Uh, in his personal testimony, he shares that he was set free, just like you should be able to share 
how you were set free. Uh, during his uh, second year as a university student, he uh, was converted from a life of cynicism and unbelief. And he tells in his story how God delivered him from some terrible habits that had enslaved him. And for one thing, until his conversion, he had an uncontrollable temper. And uh, he said that he still bears scars from a fight that he had with a man that he almost killed. But God, by his power, set him free. Set him free from fits of rage and gave him control over his temper. Now, here's uh, an excerpt from his uh, book entitled More Than a Carpenter. He says, I hated one man more than anyone else in the world. And that was my father. I hated his guts. I was mortified that he was the town alcoholic. Now, if you're from a small town and one of your uh, parents is an alcoholic, you know what I mean. Everybody knows. My high school friends would make jokes about my father's drinking, he said. They didn't think it bothered me because I fell in with the joking and laughed with them. Then he says, I was laughing on the outside. But let me tell you, I was crying on the inside. I would go to the barn and find my mother beaten so badly she couldn't get up, lying in the manure behind the cows. When we had friends over, I would take my father out to the barn and tie him up and park his car behind uh, the silo. And we would tell our guests that he had to go somewhere. I don't think anyone could hate a person more than I hated my father. About five months after I made that decision for Christ, a love from God entered my life so powerfully that it took that hatred, turned it upside down, and emptied it out. I was able to look my father squarely in the eyes and say, Dad, I love you. And I really meant it. After some of the things I'd done to him, that really shook him up. Months later, his dad said, Son of God, Son, if God can do in my life what I've seen him do in yours, then I want to give him the opportunity. I want to trust him as my Savior and Lord. Josh said, I cannot imagine a greater miracle. But the life of my father changed right before my eyes. It was as if God reached down and flipped on the light switch. Never before or since have I seen such a dramatic change. My father touched an alcoholic beverage only once after that day. He got it as far as his lips before thrusting it away forever. I can only come to one conclusion. A relationship with Jesus Christ changes lives. I can identify with that story, and I'm sure many of you can as well. It's a common story, if we'll be honest. 
There may be some here who are thinking, but Brother Joel, I'm already a Christian, but I have a sin in my life that I can't get rid of. And you may wonder, is there any help for me? And thank the Lord, there absolutely is. You see, in your case, you come before God not as a stranger or an alien, but uh, as an erring child to a loving father. And whatever you come to him, don't rationalize. Don't try to make excuses. Don't try to minimize your sin. And don't try to pass the buck. Just confess honestly where you've messed up so as to allow that sinful habit to creep into your life. Whatever the areas of slackness that caused it, and whatever the sin that has resulted from that, whether a sin of overt action, an attitude, or words, or some sin of omission, repent, ask His forgiveness, and commit yourself afresh to putting Him first in your life, and He will help you to make that new start that you are yearning for this morning. Jesus can bring you out of whatever sin has enslaved you. Drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, an ungodly attitude such as bitterness or jealousy or lust or an unwillingness to forgive, anger, any of those other things that we uh, have looked at that we should be getting out of our lives as we mature as Christians in the past few weeks. I love what the hymn says that we sing and we have sung for so many years. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. You see, he is the way out. And he's also the way in. In reference to God having delivered the Israelites from uh, Egyptian bondage, here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.23. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swear unto our fathers. You see, he brought the Hebrews out of their tragic life in Egypt so that it could bring them in to the land of promise. And uh, in the same way, when you surrender your life to him, uh, he brings you out of sin's bondage and misery. And then he brings you in to a new life, a life with wonderful possibilities and with power available to help you realize those possibilities. Lastly, he's the way out, he's the way in, and he's the way through. We who have received Jesus Christ as Savior are not exempt from life's reversals and tribulations. We're not spared from the disappointments and the heartaches and the tears. But here's the big difference. As believers, the Lord is with us in those trials. 
In Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord says to believers, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, and he will get you through them. Sharon and I, for the last uh, three years, I guess it's been now, we've been saying over and over again, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And you have seen him do that for us. He has taken us through stuff. And uh, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're going through stuff, but you're going through it with the Lord. He is with you as you face tough times. He is with you and he will get you through. As you're now, let me ask you, if you are dealing with uh, something that's uh, about to tear you apart and you don't see how you could possibly handle it. Just turn it over to the Lord and just look to Him and say, Lord, You've seen me through so many yesterdays. I know I can trust You with my todays and my tomorrows. And He will. He will. To kind of wrap this all up and tie it up with a little bow, a missionary to Africa decided to go and preach to the people of a remote village. He'd never been there before. And so he was accompanied by a big strapping guide who was born and raised in that region. And no sooner had they begun their journey than they began to, uh, well, they came into a section of jungle where the vines and the uh, undergrowth were so thick that it appeared that they couldn't go any further. And the missionary said to his native guide, Do you know a way through all of this? And the native guide drew himself to full height, and he took from his sheath a large, razor-sharp machete. And uh, he was going to use that machete to cut the vines and undergrowth. And then he smiled, and he said, Sir, I am the way. Whatever you're facing, it may not seem like there is a way, but you know the way. And His name is Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.